You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan, and I've got two of my best friends with me. One of them is Rob Levy. Greetings and felicitations. And the other one is Stephanie Seymour. Hello, people. And we're going to put on our red shoes and dance the blues because it oh, is no. 1983, baby. <laughs> Where were you two in 1983? What were you doing? What was your life in 83? I was in high school. I was a, what was I, a junior in high school. Uh, yeah. So I was like 16, no, 17 um, for half that year <laughs> and uh, playing drums in my high school band to a lot of these albums that we're going to talk about tonight. Nice. I was, believe it or not, 15 years old. Yes, you were. This is the probably the year building up to it was kind of happening, but this is probably the year of my musical awakening. I went to Hollister, California to see my grandfather because my grandma was ill and uh, he had a shortwave radio in his den, which his den is just like the coolest space ever known to man. And um, I could pick up a station that I've now learned is I think KUSF Oh yeah, um, great station. And like the, I literally just kept picking up all these stations on the West Coast and I'm like, what is this? What is this music? Oh my God, this is all amazing. And um, I came back just nuts. And I was getting ready for high school, you know, and I um, listened to music, but this is when I really sort of started to have my deep dive fanaticism with music. I didn't know at the time, but I picked all the bands that uh, weren't cool. Um, which really would have helped me about a year later. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was I was reading a lot and I was, you know, listening to music and watching baseball and that's it. Where were you, yeah. Alan? I, well, I was two years out of high school and I was working at an office supply company. I had not yet started my job at, in music retail, which I think that was 85. Mm -hmm. And holy, that was one of the best jobs I've ever had. Didn't make any money off of it, but I right. loved it so much. So in a couple of years, when we do our episode on 1985, buddy, I'm going to have all kinds of record <laughs> store stories to tell. But for right now, we're talking about 1983. And my God, there is so much stuff that happened in 1983. So much that we are going to divide this episode into two parts and we're only going to cover January through June in this episode. And I still think that's going to be too much because when you look yeah. down through the list of like you go to Wikipedia and you just look at the list of stuff that came out in 1983, 
just the most massively successful albums. It's like one after another of just classic, classic, big selling, huge albums. Yep. Of all different genres, too. Right. Holy cow, do we have a lot to talk about. So let's just get started. It's January 1983, and one of the very first records that comes out that year is Sweet Dreams by the Eurythmics. I mean, this is the record that really puts them on the map as far as like American general awareness goes. This is the thing that launches them. Yeah, and it's actually their second album, you know, yeah. which I always thought when I was that age that it was their first, but... This album was recorded in the attic of an old warehouse in London. They spent like seven months living and working there. And then they went to like a little room in a studio in London and recorded the rest there. But basically on an eight track tape machine. Mm. And it just, it was a huge, huge breakthrough for them, both sides of the Atlantic. I mean, you know, to me, her voice is like a force of nature. You know, it could be like soft and sweet and they can just yep. like blow the roof out off the house you know i mean she's just got such a unique tone and i just i think that her kind of gender bender image in that in that first few videos series you yeah. know love is a stranger and sweet Dreams, really just like it was shocking it was um gorgeous it was it was just everything she just had the whole package and they were they it was just an absolute smash especially with mtv playing the shit out of it right actually weirdly enough a bigger hit over here than over there mm-hmm mm too, which is very strange. Um, they always were more popular in the States than they were in Britain, mm -hmm. which was probably, yeah. I think, because they didn't sound like anything over here. Yeah. And there was a lot of electronic music kind of filtrating mm -hmm. through that mm -hmm. year. You know, when we had Richard Evans on, and he's the author of the book, Listening to the Music the Machines Make, and, and it's a book about the early days of electronic pop. One of the things that I meant to bring up in that episode and didn't get a chance to is that I, I read that um, Dave Stewart kind of described the early Eurythmics music as a cross between Kraftwerk and Motown. Huh. What an interesting, I mean, who would ever think to put those two things together? But I mean, it's such a perfect description. Yeah. Yes, that is such a cool, cool. I mean, it is interesting because you have this movement in England going on where you have the Eurythmics and as we'll get to later, soft cell is sort of doing some Northern soul, soul stuff with their stuff. Heaven 17 is doing it. You're starting to see soul music kind of infiltrate electronica. Mm -hmm. As big a hit as sweet dreams was my favorite track on the album is love as a stranger oh my mine too, too. oh yes. my god that song blows me away it, i love it so much and the it's, video yes actually i don't even know if i remember the video but the she's song, like dressed as a, a man and a woman in that video oh it's, that's right and I she's in a car that. and like yeah yeah so yeah, cool. yeah 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 oh and yeah i love chauffeur. that song yeah. it's so ethereal and so angelic but in a weird way you know it's just yes oh. like creepy almost it, like it, what's exactly. gonna happen like it should exactly. be a soundtrack to a movie someone should you make can, that a movie <laughs> you can hear the grace jones in that too uh mm. which i which i love but that that is also my favorite track on the record Definitely. and yeah. 
back in the day when I used to DJ out, that was the one I played, right? Because yeah. you can do so many things with it. You know, the cool thing about that, that was actually a flop. They released that first, I think, and then mm-hmm. when it was, didn't do well. And then Sweet Dreams came out, and then they re-released Love's a Stranger as a single. Yeah. It's got right. that little thump, 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 and then kicks in. It's really good. Yeah. Also, roughly the first week of January, I don't think anybody knew it was going to sort of shake the foundation of the world. And I know we're going to talk about it later, but Michael Jackson released Billie Jean in the first week of January, and it did not relent yes, a position on the charts. And that record was a tidal wave on both MTV and radio. And it just sort of set the table, I think, for everything else that followed. So I just wanted to at least give a slight yeah. nod to that. Oh, yeah. That's a that's a huge one. Totally changed the MTV landscape. It did. Uh, and it's interesting because yeah. January, you get a lot of records that shape MTV for the next three or four years. So you got those two records. And then you've got Nana. Nana was part of that sort of German new wave that was going on. So the new wave that hit America in 83 it already hit germany in like 80 and 81 and it resonated stronger because they had they had bowie in berlin and sort of a lot of other things to sort of predicate that moving but there's daf there's nana there's all these german new wave bands popping up that are taking the sounds of bowie and Kraftwerk and doing things with them right and nana is does something different for german pop music in that she's a very strong woman fronting a band and you know for years german pop records have been german pop records and this thing goes international and suddenly she has to learn english to record it in english yeah. and then forever we're stuck with 99 loop balloons right <laughs> there's also a really great song called nurger hopped or something my german is terrible um that's almost just as good the rest of the record is really really tight mm-hmm. but that also sort of piggybacks with the arrhythmics and some of this like new wave stuff that's coming over. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really interesting that, you know, that record sort of also brings the other thing into 1983 that sort of is prevalent in music. And I know you're going to talk about you two later, Steph, but oh, yeah. um, that sort of like living with the bomb thing that's around a lot in 83, 84 and 85. Right. In pop records. Right. Exactly. Like you just nailed it for you too with uh, seconds. That was really about the nuclear proliferation, you know? Yeah. There, there's all, this is all interesting because you, so you have that kind of music, but then you also have massive hits by Def Leppard coming out. So yes. they released Pyromania, yeah. right? On the 20th yeah. of January, just mm-hmm. their third album. But this was their massive breakthrough and really because i think they sort of went a li- uh, they went a little bit away from the really hard hard rock that they were doing for their first mm-hmm. couple albums and they they had a little more pop mutt lang produces they they just and they also actually this was uh, as their rhythm guitar guitarist pete was kind of on the way out he played rhythm guitar in the album but this is when phil collin actually joined the band and was doing yeah. all like the lead stuff yeah that and that, so that, so that record is still it, it hit has aged well Right. It has. It has. It sounds. It sounds relevant today. I mean, photograph, rock of ages, fooling. There, there's great. There are so many great songs. It sold like 10 million copies in the U.S. alone. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting too. Is they're they're from Sheffield, right? And they sound like none of the other bands from Sheffield. But Sheffield had such a great music scene going on at the time that you've got the guys from Cabaret Voltaire and Jarvis Cocker and all these other guys mm. that are like 
Oh, yeah. good for you. They're like all pushing for each other. So when Def Leppard makes it, all these people you don't expect to be in the same camp are like, this is amazing. It's were, really. They were all very young guys too. And they, yeah. I mean, they were real mm-hmm. young, super young when they first started out. So this was, they're still all in their real early twenties at this point. Yeah. You know? I was, I was in on the Def Leppard train right at the beginning. And I remember seeing some rock magazines with them in it. And they were the first band that I can remember seeing that wore their influences on their sleeve, like literally, because they were pictured in this magazine wearing like Bowie t-shirts and, mm. you know, things of like, they're advertising other bands basically on, you know, instead of themselves. And I thought that was really interesting. Huh. I'd never seen a band do that before. And I thought, oh, that's cool. Look. I don't remember that because I just remember yeah. looking at Joe Elliott's face and Rick Savage's face and being like, they're so yeah. cute. <laughs> yeah. Well, sure. Sure. Um, and I do love the singles off that album, but there's three tracks uh, like deep cuts that I really love. And that is rock till you drop. Die Hard, The Hunter, and Coming Under Fire. Such oh, yes. a good album. Such it a is. good album. Um, another one in the hard rock vein is Triumph, Never oh. Surrender. Um, mm. But I love Triumph. And they were, this was a, a big album for them. Um, just a great band. But one that I, that uh, Stephanie, I know that you want to talk about a little bit, and that's Brian Adams, Cuts Like a Knife. I do. And I, you know, I was never a Brian Adams fan when he came, when it came out. I, I just, I didn't appreciate, I think that his, his voice, first of all, because he's just got an amazing rock voice. Um, but, and, and actually he's a, a really great songwriter too. And he's written with a lot of people, but uh, yeah, I mean that, that just talk about another album that just blew someone's career wide open cuts like a knife was everywhere you couldn't mm-hmm. get away from it and at that point i like i said i kind of didn't really want to hear it <laughs> but but now i look back on it and i say and i say to myself you know gosh and just his whole career i mean he's just had he's just He's a real rock and roller, I think. I don't know. I kind of have a, more, a deeper appreciation for him now. Yeah, I don't know. He got a bit schmaltzy there for a while. Well, yeah, I yeah. He... I mean, they're schmaltz, but but I'm saying oh I just God. think his voice is so. His voice is. Yeah. He's got such a rock voice. It's so good. I, I liked him well enough at the time, you know. But the the title song "Cuts Like a Knife" I absolutely love, and I've got a I've got a kiss connection to this album. Hmm. Oh. He and um, I can't remember the guy who produces him. Um, um, anyway, the two of them kind of got brought in to the Kiss camp to do some co-writing. And um, one of the tracks that ends up on Kiss's Creatures of the Night album was called War Machine. And it's a big Gene Simmons song. And you would n- it sounds nothing like Brian Adams. And you're like, I can't believe Brian Adams co-wrote that song. But he, <laughs> he co-wrote another one with Eric Carr, their drummer at the time that kiss didn't record. And it's on cuts like a knife and it's called don't leave me lonely. It is so good. Oh, such a great song. And it was a co-write between Brian and Eric Carr. Okay. So there you go. Yeah. There you go. I think that guy's got a, a trivia lot of for publishing you. credits. <laughs> yeah. In a completely different vein. Well, two different veins. Uh, Brian Eno's atmospheres and soundtracks that he made with your good friend, Daniel Lanois. My good oh friend. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, just a completely different record than anything else that came out that, that particular year. Mm-hmm. Also Malcolm McLaren's duck rock. 
Oh, yeah. Right? The thing is, is if you're going to cop from other people, at least make it good, right? And, and that's what he did well. Mm-hmm. And it does so many different things that I don't think people in 1983 really appreciated. It. And it's, it's much more revered now than I think it was when it came out. But it's, it's a fascinating record to listen to now. It doesn't sound dated. Actually, the Eno record doesn't sound dated either, but it's just, it's, it's different. And then, you know, you also get uh, the Minutemen, what makes a man yes. start fires. Yeah. All those mm-hmm. Minutemen records are huge. Yeah. Um, there's, there's some stuff in January that's going to really influence what we call American alternative music in the next three or four years. Cause you've got the Minuteman, Minuteman record. You've got um, Pylon, I think their first album, Chomp or Champ. You know, there wouldn't be an REM if that Pylon record doesn't drop, you know, and Pylon really went hand in hand with REM, which we'll talk about eventually. Mm-hmm. But yet just to kind of go back to Duck Rock, I mean, you're right. Buffalo Gals and Double Dutch, I think it was. Double yeah. Dutch. Man, those, you just think about how, um, also visually, like the videos for those were very, very striking. And I think like Art of Noise and stuff kind of, all that kind of stuff reminds me of, you know, the way music was progressing. And yeah, he he definitely had a kind of Svengali-ish like uh, thing about him where he he uh, was really an influencer. One last one that I want to get in before we leave January behind, because this is a transition record that's going to affect something a couple of months down the, the, the calendar here. And that is Black Sabbath releases a live album called Live Evil. And this is the end of the Ronnie James Dio era of Black Sabbath. He's pretty much out the door already at this point. And apparently the story goes that um, there was a little bit of a war in the studio where they're mixing the album and nobody's happy with it. And Tony Iommi will sneak in and, and do a remix on it and get it the way he wants it. And then Ronnie comes in and does it all again to get it the way he wants it. And so they, they, he felt like they kept trying to bury his vocals on the album because they were mad at him and he was gone and, and all this kind of stuff. And then they list him on the record as vocals by Ronnie Dio instead of Ronnie James Dio, which is the name he goes by. And he, he thought that was a, a big slap in the face. So it's a crazy situation. And that, that story we're going to pick up on in May. So oh, yeah, interesting intrigue leave you on a cliffhanger as we move into february and february 1st man frontier by journey <laughs> are you excited about journey steph <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah faithfully baby faithfully yeah separate ways i mean you know i'm not excited by journey because i you know look i also can appreciate the fact that steve perry has an amazing voice they were all great players but like those songs mm-hmm. to me then just i did they were so not cool but then i look back at stuff you know and it, it wasn't on this record but like the song lights i mean i want to cover that song it's so good like they they had they had some really good pop stuff you know yeah my local roller rink played those journey records into the ground <laughs> I'll tell you what, if you said the thing that pretty much sums up 1983, and that is Roller Rink. <laughs> roller Rink. I mean, That's I where heard the music, music lived. Not yeah. counting stuff I heard, you know, f- f- at my at my grandfather's den thing. You know, the mm-hmm. Roller Rink in the swimming pool. That's where you heard it. <laughs> True. You know? I really liked Separate Ways when that was the first single came out and it was kind of a heavy single. It didn't sound like some of the previous journey singles from, you know, previous albums. And so I really liked that. 
um, I got the album and you know, all the singles are good. Send her my love is a great song. Faithfully. Yeah. I, I get a little tired of that, mm. but it's a good song, but everything else on the record, I absolutely love um, right in the middle of side one. There's a song called chain reaction, which is a little heavier and I love it. But mm. then all of side two edge of the blade, troubled child, back talk frontiers and Rubicon phenomenal. It's probably my favorite side of any journey record. Oh, I might have to actually go back and check that out then. Yeah. Edge of the blade is just a great rocker. Back talk is kind of weird. Rubicon. It's just a, it's just a great collection of stuff. So I highly huh. recommend it. Who, who else Rob, has got something? I know, Cause I know if, you, if Rob some. doesn't, if Rob doesn't, I'm going to have to jump in on Kilroy was here from Sticks, and nobody no, wants that. Please do Porcupine by Echo and the Bunnymen, Rob. I, well, I was going to talk about. <laughs> I knew Alan was going to talk about Sticks, so that's okay. Oh man, of course. So yeah, let's talk about Echo and the Bunnymen, uh, Porcupine, which um, is fantastic. It's not. It wasn't at the time my favorite Echo and the Bunnymen record. Um, I had. It's the first album that a girl actually gave me. She didn't give it to me that year, but I got it about a year and a half, two, about three years later. Their artwork for all their album covers is great. Basically, for an Echo and the Bunnyman album cover, you have to go someplace and look as cold and miserable as possible <laughs> to reflect the sound of the music and the production. But that record's got some fantastic production on it, and uh, the singles on it are great. Cutter and the Back of Love. Oh, man. The Back of Love is great. Back oh. of Love was kind of a single ahead of time. The Cutter's great. Um, you know they had to re-record that whole album? basically yes yeah yeah i mean that's why it sounds so good i mean they they first recorded and they were all miserable and whatever and and didn't come out as as like the record company wanted to and they basically they basically got said you know you're going to redo this yep and i think it's one of those times when a band sort of gets back in the studio and it gets fixed and yeah all as well yeah i mean as well as it could be for that band but yes because they were never like um it's also it's also the album that kind of got them over here yeah they were kind of like a cult band they're still a cult band but there's definitely a momentum building with them leading up to ocean rain and this record kind of really uh does some of that with it too great um okay alan you want to do sticks if we have to okay sticks put out kilroy was here and that was a letdown um after some massive and really really solid and really creative albums like grand illusion and pieces of eight and then they followed that up with a couple of like cornerstone and paradise theater which were pretty good albums kilroy was another step down at, musically speaking and the production on it is terrible it, it just sounds thin and lifeless um there's actually some good songs on it and i saw them in concert that year and uh, it was an interesting show. They tried to do a concept album that Dennis DeYoung was the driver of, and JY and Tommy did not like it. And they tried to do this stage production that sort of like encapsulated the story from the album. And it didn't make any damn sense. And it was, I mean, it was a good show, but it was just weird. Huh. So, and then of course that produced the all time classic, Mr. Roboto. Oh God. God. Oh my God. <laughs> I hated that so much. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. yeah. I was like, the is this worst. what we're doing now? We, we go from grand illusion. We go from like, come sail away and fooling yourself and renegade and blue collar man. And now we're going to do Mr. Roboto. What the fuck? Because I feel like they were kind of trying to jump on the eighties bandwagon. And then that was their desperate attempt at some kind of, you know, I don't yeah. know. 
the sad thing is there's so many people that that's the first sticks they heard and that's how they define the band and they don't really realize that there's so much more going on there i know well that happens with oh yeah yeah and that's exactly something that i'm going to talk about in the second half of 1983 because when the yes album comes out anyway we'll talk about that later but yeah so that wasn't a super great album i I think we have to move to something then that's the most one of like the best album of the year possible gee i wonder what that could be And I and it's War by you too. <laughs> I oh, mean, I know it came out. I'm, I'm totally surprised. I had no oh. idea that's what you were going to say. Oh, <laughs> I was like, are you? <laughs> Did I fool you? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I mean, so listen. Oh God, you Do know it. it's almost hard to talk about some albums because they're like almost like they are you and you are them because you're so attached to them emotionally and you know at a young impressionable age. And this album meant so much to me that it's sort of like changed the course of my life when I heard it because not only was I like practicing to these songs with with my drums and learning how to you know really be a, a good musician we were playing these songs live when my my high school band had gigs uh you know this is why I started working in the music industry right like I I I just I specifically wanted to work at the label that island that U2 was on so I had you know called island to get an internship a few years later but I mean this album was, and I also saw this tour. I saw them on June twenty seventh of eighty three. Um, there was, there's no bad song on this album. There's actually no. They're all to me. They're like perfect songs. I, I just I, like a song is probably one of my favorite songs of all time. Two Heart mm. Speed is one. Surrender. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even know where to start. So this is also where they start being very political, like lyric wise, overtly kind of. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, yeah. because Sunday Bloody Sunday is about the n- troubles. Mm-hmm. Uh, seconds, of course, we were saying nuclear war and New Year's Day is about the, the Polish solidarity movement. And like while this was lost on me, maybe some a bit of this was lost on me at 16 years old. Um, I knew that it had meaning and I knew that it had power mm-hmm. and it came through to a 16 year old, you know. Well, I loved New Year's Day when it came out. I just thought it was so interesting and different and it sounded like nothing else that I was hearing on the radio at the time. I thought it was great. Mm -hmm. And you also get two heart speed is one and 40. God, 40 is one of the best best closing songs for an album. Right. Um, Yep. Agreed. This Steph and I will fight about this till she (laughs) doesn't want me to be cool anymore and stabs me to my sleep. But (laughs) I think it's the last good U2 record. Oh yeah, I don't. Oh, I don't no. agree. No, no I, I don't I, agree with that either. I don't agree. No, not <laughs> but, at all. Hey, that's but, okay. Yeah, that's friendships okay. intact. <laughs> <laughs> we love. We love. It's a, and I say that because it's the last one where I liked everything about it, and uh-huh. I wasn't like I didn't like skip over songs or you know, yeah, um, just bang. It's like firing bullets, just one after another. The whole thing, Man. you know, it's just. That that's that stops right before you get to Unforgettable Fire, and that's a fucking great record. It's a oh great record. God. Um so great. But there's some there's some hiccups on it. Yeah. Possibly. So this was by the way, just war was the first UK number one album that they had. And uh yeah. in, in the US it just reached twelve, but still it it mm-hmm. pretty much blew them open too. So I mean, New, yeah. New Year's Day was just like massive hit. So yeah. Also that year you've got um a record that a lot of people sort of credit is really putting a stamp on what we call post-punk now. And that's the orange juice single rip it up. And that comes out uh, this month and it sort of 
changes the game because like at this point the the uk's got all these like really guitar driven indie like angsty records and this is kind of more got a little bit more funky kind of thing going on you know mm -hmm. it's somebody's been listening to now rogers right somebody's been listening to some ska and they're making a record punk's still holding in there because the ramones put out uh an mm -hmm. album too that's subterranean jungle yeah. which is um not their best but not their worst yeah Definitely there was other true. you know a couple others in february that i think were notable again i didn't love them but the greg kin band had conspiracy that record yeah I yeah. mean that that just it was all over. But a a really cool record was uh, "Waiting" by Funboy Three, and that's again notable because that has their version of "Our Lips Are Sealed," mm, which right. of course was massive hit by the Go Go's, but it was co-written with by Terry in mm -hmm. Funboy Three. So they did their version in um, I don't know the Tunnel of Love, a good song. So that was a that was sort of like them and Bananarama, which I'm going to talk about when we get to mm. March, I guess it is, um, had that kind of whole, you know, um, messed up kind of look like with like the Dexie's Midnight Runners kind of yeah. look, you know, with we overall. We got Bow Wow Wow kicking around there Yeah, too. yeah. It was to like that kind extent. of whole yeah. Yeah, vibe. So I love Thumbboy 3. I think they're great. They're fun. They're fun. And they're, they're boys. boys. And, and there's three of them. <laughs> Righty. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> We ran that that name into the ground. <laughs> All right, so let's just jump into March then. Yeah. Oh man, March! Wow. Yeah, I know you don't like well, Spanda Ballet, true, but it did I, it did come out then. Dude, I it, love that song. I still okay. love that song. And that I mean, there wasn't like the whole record. The record as a whole wasn't knock your socks off. I don't think, but it was. I thought it was pretty. I thought it was a pretty record, you know, but man, true was just a massive smash. And yeah. of course the whole new romantic thing was in full, full effect. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause Duran Duran does, is there something I should know? It's like a one-off. Yeah. That mm -hmm. month. Who wants to start? Who wants to do tears for fears? Uh, I will gladly start with, uh, one of my five, well, two of my all time favorite records are out this month. Mm. Um, actually, well, and then, but is in my top 10 too, but you have tears for fears and mad world, which, Oh man. Um, my God, that record's just perfect. Is it right? called the hurting? Sorry. Is it called the hurting, the hurting is the album? The hurting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But like you listen to mad world, you listen to pale shelter, you listen to uh, memories fade. Yeah. It's like change, change. change. It's, oh it's definitely God. like a relationship record, but it's also sort of like this, like nuclear winter breakup record. Right. I can't really put my, finger on it but it's just man that record is just i know it really gets you, know, you. yeah i came into them like most americans with big chair and then went back and got the hurting and the hurting is so different it's so different than what you would expect to hear based on your first exposure to them being the big chair um and it took me a little time to get into it but i really really love it I didn't so know good. the. I know this one better than the Big Share, so I, yeah. yeah, like I guess I, it would be in a way opposite. I, yeah, I yeah. I jumped in on this one. Yeah, um, and it was like, man, Mad World was like great. Change mm. was fantastic. Some um, of the children. I mean, yeah, ideas as opiates. Even it's just like, yeah, yeah. I love that one. It's just the whole thing is just like really fantastic. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So I will. I will. But what yeah. a, I think we talked about this in a previous show, what a huge stylistic jump 
from that first album to the second album. Yeah. I yeah. mean, if you were going in order, Big Chair would have knocked your socks off because it is so different and it's so like such a, a jump in maturity and and technical ability and composition and arrangement. I mean, it's just massive. It's just a huge, yeah. huge difference. And and so the same day, so March seventh, the the hurting comes out, and also Bananarama's Deep Sea Skiving record, which <laughs> I know it wasn't a super oh, smash. Oh, it's amazing. You love it? Do you really love it? I was fifteen when that record came out, and I'm a boy. Come on, well, oh, okay, you know. Um, <laughs> but it was yeah. great because it was every just the idea. Of, it was fun, you know. You've I got, still listen to that in my car. I still listen. I to listen that. to it a lot. I knew at that age, it's like I want a girl that's cool enough to rock overalls like that, totally, and, and have cool hair. I'm like. But the cool thing about them also was they did not want to be like a factory churned out girl yeah. group, and they they really they co-wrote a lot of songs on that record that were hits. Yeah. And um, they really, from there, it launched, you know, they obviously they became quite popular, especially in the UK. I mean, they weren't always, they always weren't as like big here as they were in the UK, but they had pretty much lots of smashes here too. But yeah, this, I, I thought they were the coolest. I really did. I love them so much. And every song is so catchy on that album. Our buddy, Anthony, who is not here with us this week, you know, he, he likes, I don't know if I, if I can say love. But he, he likes Bananarama. Mm -hmm. He may love them. I don't know. Um, so, you know, I feel like this is a good month for him because another album that came out that month that is definitely an Anthony album, uh, one of his absolute favorite bands, and that is Marillion. And they put out an album called Script for a Jester's Tear. Phenomenal record. I didn't come into Marillion until 1985 when they put out the, the single Kaylee which got radio play and MTV play here in America and nothing else prior to that really did. And then from there, I went back and started getting some of their earlier albums and script is one of my favorite Marillion records. Um, it's just got some great songs, the title cut Chelsea Monday, forgotten sons. And one of the things that makes this record really good and really solid is that they worked on the songs for this record over like a five year period, forgotten sons, started as a song called Alice. So there's like this long gestation period for the stuff that ends up on this record. And I think it, it proves out, you know, because it's, it's such a good, solid, well thought out, well composed record. Mm -hmm. So Anthony, that's for you. Rock on Anthony. I guess the, the juggernaut in the room that we should talk about, cause it wasn't part of a proper album per se, but um, new order released blue Monday in March of 1983. Oh Yeah. Yeah, they basically almost bankrupted Factory Records because of the way they wanted the sleeve to be. So it's like this cool record in terms of like album art and album sleeves, but then it's also this like huge dance record that forty years later does not sound like a forty-year-old dance record at all. Yeah, and then you know we've got OMD and Dazzle Ships, which came out three days before the Tears for Fears record, and. Like Tears for Fears, they have this sort of Cold War vibe, and it's kind of kind of a little political undertone. But they take shortwave radio recordings from the Eastern Bloc and put them on records, and they put like just these weird electronic compositions that people at the time were like, "This is okay," but now it's like, "This is oh, this is a masterpiece," right? Like it's this, it's this run where OMD has like these two or three albums that are just not of the time 
Mm-hmm. And I think people don't really get it. And, that, and then the light switch went on later, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But like you get a lot of fantastic songs on there. You know, the whole album sort of is a concept album in many ways. Telegraph is like painfully catchy, but you've got these this theme of like little radio snippets going all the way through. And you've got things like silent running and radio waves that um, sort of hold everything together as well. And this record had a profound effect on Vince Clark who would go on to do some other things. So that record. And then um, I'm going to throw a, a, a really weird wild card into all of this. And that um, that was the uh, month the Candy Girl by New Edition was released. Huh. Uh, produced, by <laughs> Arthur, right. produced by Arthur Baker, who also produced New Orleans. <laughs> um, <laughs> remixed it, right? And the thing is, is like, okay, this is the record that introduced Bobby Brown to the world, which for what that is, is it is what it is. But it also Bobby, sort of Bobby, it Bobby, sort of started Bobby. <laughs> it sort of started this whole like um revival of kind of like pop doo-wop. It's an interesting record now, and you can definitely hear a lot of musical influences later. Like you can hear where this record influenced a lot of other people. Also, two other records that um I remember watching on TV that I still love a lot. ZZ Top's Eliminator came out that month. I think they had what six videos on MTV. Freaking and like, huge, and they all looked the yeah. same. You couldn't. Tell and they them were an part. event. Every every <laughs> yeah. ZZ Top video was an event, and they were yeah. smart enough to have themes recurring. They really got the mm-hmm. idea of video as film. One hundred percent. Yeah. But that record, you know, parts of it, part of it, it charted on the disco charts. People forget that that record did was that. it legs no. that did that for that i mean legs did and yeah. um give me all your love and both did really oh, well give me all your love and yeah mm-hmm. yeah uh so that record is it's still great i mean you know mm-hmm. um that's another that's one i awesome. kind of gained appreciation for as i and then back. you know people will slag this record off and they're welcome to but man that quiet riot metal health record is just mm-hmm. it's great well that's a good one because that was going to be the next one that I brought up because that leads into something else that I was going to say. Well, go ahead. But yes, take it. That that um, that Quiet Riot record is the first metal album to hit number one. It changes the game for a lot of stuff for a lot of the bands that are coming out of uh, L.A. and San Fran and all that stuff. There, all these bands are going to start to get because everybody wants to cash in on that metal health success so every band on the scene every good band on the scene and a couple of shitty ones too got record contracts over the next year or two years and it just changes and especially for mtv that's the beginning of a big change because mtv is about to become like all hair metal pretty metal central yeah metal central and that's Um, what we were talking about in the tom bojour episode when we of our podcast went yeah with him when um we were discussing the sunset strip scene and how really it, this, this was a really significant year for like a lot of bands just yeah. starting to, to really ramp up, you know, and get signed and like Motley Crue had stuff, you know, it was just like, it was all coming out, you know, Twisted it's Sisters later. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that, I mean, and that record in terms of the video, you know, for how they constructed the video, they kind of changed the idea of what a video could be. Yeah. And, you know, they made a lot of people listen to glam, which is great. Go back and sort of re-examine glam. And it also, um, I think people don't realize that that dude's voice is just. Yeah. And you're talking about Come On, Fill the Noise, which was the second single and an enormous hit. And yeah. Kevin Dubrow, the, the singer, 
hated it and refused to record it. And they basically had to browbeat him into actually doing it. And then, of course, when they when he did, it became an enormous hit. But he resisted him. it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but he, he resisted it for the longest time. He hated the idea really? of even doing covers. Oh, yeah. So, but they talked him into it and it worked out for him at least did. for a year or so. I got one more yeah. I mentioned that I, uh, for a March album that I would just want to just, just briefly mention is the yeah, tubes yeah. outside, inside. Oh, um, because She's a Beauty was their biggest hit of, of their career, I believe it was like number one mainstream rock chart, you know, like number 10 pop single. And mm -hmm. they, you know, MTV was a, a really big help with that too. Cause they had interesting videos and stuff, but uh, I think that deserves an honorable mention as a, as a, you know, something well, I, I really liked, I enjoyed it, but you know, and it I deserves believe... a mention. I don't know how honorable it needs to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know what? I think we're going to take a break right here and, uh, we're going to come back in about 30 seconds, and we're going to talk about April. I'm Drew Leiter. And I'm Cletus Jacobs. And we're inviting you to join us as we delve into the dawn of the D.C. We'll be reviewing new titles such as The Unstoppable Doom Patrol, Shazam, Green Lantern, Titans, Justice Society of America, and more. We'll also be reviewing D.C. Television's final season of The Flash, Titans and Doom Patrol. Join us every week on the Earth Station DCU podcast, part of the ESO Network. Guess what? It's April 1983. What's happening in April? There's some good stuff happening in April. R-E-M. R-E-M. Murmur. Holy Moses. That's a great, great record. Oh, like for a debut album? I mean, I yeah. know they had Chronic Town EP first, but whatever. I mean, it was voted Rolling Stone's best album of 1983, which is pretty impressive for a mm -hmm. debut album. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the first, the first song on the record, Radio Free Europe. Holy cow! I love that song so much. There's a review of of Murmur that was really kind of cool. I thought it summed it up really perfectly. This whole album, Jonathan Gregg of Record, um, he said that it was quote a splendid little film noir of an album, austere but rich in implication. I thought that Ooh. was really like a lovely, and and also he was sort of saying that. The, that Michael Stipe's lyrics and his uh, his voice kind of it was so hard to understand that it almost gave the album a meaning that even if you couldn't decipher his 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 lyrics, hmm. it still you knew that there was meaning there mm -hmm. <laughs> underneath it all. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's super cool. Mm -hmm. That's my big pick for April. Well, okay, my big pick comes out two days later, and that is Ooh. Bowie. Let's dance. Yeah. The biggest selling album of Bowie's career, like it or not, you know, yep. I know he went a little pop on this one, but, you know, I think this is one of the best records of his career. And I know yes. it's, you know, it's, it's contentious to say that, but it's such a well-crafted album. Every, almost every song on it is superb. And the three singles, the three big singles that they released from it, Let's Dance, um, China Girl and Modern Love 
were just all over the radio and all over MTV and phenomenal success. And mm -hmm. so I've got a whole story about how I really became a hardcore Bowie fan, but I'm going to save that for next year when we talk about 1984. Okay. See, this is kind of my jumping off point for Bowie. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd heard some of the other like singles and stuff, but I never really cite this is when I was sort of all in at this point and went back to like the albums, not just the stuff everybody knew. And you watch the videos for that too. And this is an artist that clearly understands his visual and mm -hmm. musical yeah. presentation. Yeah. It's also an artist that's like, yes, I'm going to have an, a track that's eight minutes long and it's still fantastic. And let's not forget that that record is really one of the things that launched Stevie Ray Vaughan into yes, the public conscience. Holy shit, that was a big deal. Uh, uh, this is a little off the beaten track, but there was two really important hardcore albums that came out. Bad Brains, Rock for Light. Well, oh. that was just... And Minor Threat, Out of Step. Yeah, Rob's like pumping his fist. So I think yeah. those were really, really important for the hardcore scene. Well, and actually, Minor Threat, you know, that um, Out of Step was huge. On, that record profoundly affected thrash metal and grunge yeah too right yeah, yeah um my friends that really loved thrash metal were like man that minor threat record that was one of the one things that got me into it and i'm like oh okay mm -hmm. but then you know you you listen to all these cats in the 90s that made grunge records and they all talk about how much they loved yeah. minor threat well all all these bands too that also loved bad brains and and just hr yeah. was mm -hmm. like such a freaking force of nature um, you know, yeah, he, he just, I, I saw them live like so many times they, it was just to, such an event to be at a, at a bad brain show. <laughs> kind of always knew what you're going to get in a way, but you also never knew what you're going to get. See, both of those great. bands was physically and mentally exhausting in every possible great way <laughs> that you could go see a band. Yeah. You were just, your body was worn out, your ears were bleeding and you sort of like were caught up in like this sort of spirit of yeah like camaraderie with people like, at the show especially those bad brain shows oh right? man i know yeah i yep. only saw them twice so i'm not as cool as you the hilarious thing about yes that's the month that we got the first kasha gugu record um <laughs> it's also the month that we got a record there's a lot of records this month that are that i that i loved and one of my again one of my five favorite records came out that month it was highland hard rain mm -hmm. by aztec camera i saw them on that mm, tour yeah that was great um Wow. I don't like oblivious, you know, walk out the winter, oh. uh, boy wonders. It's just, oh. it's, it, it sort of catapults this like Scottish indie movement into, into like the mainstream. You had some of it with orange juice, but it's like this moment for Scottish pop music. And it starts this kind of wave where you get all these other bands from Scotland. Big country and around. stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Roddy frame was just a hell of a songwriter on this thing. And it, it was a great debut. Yep. That's, you know, that thing is still perfect. It is. Also, uh, Madness, Madness, because you get Our House and It Must Be Love. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and another band that uh, I, I love, 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 love is Madness. Toured with the Go-Go's, I think, on this tour. I saw it. <laughs> well, yes, they did. <laughs> and I love that record a lot, so I'm going to throw that in. And um, I'd be remiss if I did not mention that Sparks released their 12th album, Oh my god! Right in 1983, um, right in in outer space, which had right. cool places on it. 
Right. Speaking of Go-Go's, Miss Jane Weedlin yep. is, is yep. on that song and on Lucky Me, Lucky You. Yeah, which I like better yeah. than but that's just I, yeah. I don't think I don't think Cool Places is that great a song. It's incredibly repetitive, but the video makes it. Well, that, I'm, that's true. That's true. But I just don't think it's as good as Lucky Me, Lucky You. No. Two um, albums that just were also like kind of insanely huge were Men at Work, Cargo yeah. came out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Which yeah. I was. I mean, like, again, I wasn't a major fan, but like they were everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I wasn't either, but there's a couple, you know, it, the, the two singles that were big here that came out from it is It's a Mistake, which is a great song. Oh, yeah. And my favorite Minute Work song, Overkill. Mm-hmm. Holy shit, that is such a good song. Yeah, their singles were really good. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Um, And and also Replacements, Hootenanny. 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 Yeah. <laughs> We'd yeah. love to talk about that record with somebody, but oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> we'll 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 go back to that at some other episode, I'm sure. Um it's also an interesting month because you've got this is the year of the the flash dance phenomenon. Cause you get mm. Maniac later and you get Flash Dance. That record by Irene Carr was friggin' everywhere. Oh, that yeah. Flash Dance What a Feeling. It had this weird moment that came with this record. But when you strip all that other stuff away, it's a good little record. It's not great, it's not perfect, but it's it holds its own. Um I am very excited, though, that that month is the month that we got uh, Whammy by the B-52s. Yeah, dog. <laughs> yes. I will say that after their first their first two records are pretty close to perfect. Yes. Starting with the third record, which is Whammy, they started using a drum machine instead of live drums. And I really hate it. <laughs> um, it changes the whole. It sounds plasticky. It, it sounds fake. I don't like it, but the songs are really good. Uh, Whammy Kiss, basically the title song, is one of my favorite. But, you know, a lot of the stuff from the second and or the third and fourth albums sound much better live when they're played by an actual band. Mm -hmm. And Whammy Kiss is one of those. And Legal Tender is a great song. Oh, my God, what a song. My favorite one from this album, though, is basically a recipe, and it's called Butterbean. Butterbean! Shit, I love that song so much. Everybody so likes good. butter beans. Oh it is the wackiest, nuttiest song they have ever come up with. I mean, who would have thought to write an entire song about cooking butter beans? But there it is. Yep. And it's that's a great wonderful. Album. Such a good yeah, album. Yeah, that's a great album. Okay, yep. I've got one more from April that I want to get into, and it's going to be a surprise. It's Michael Bolton. I knew you were going to, I don't know why, but I knew you were going to say that. But he started out as kind of a hard rock guy. And I actually saw him play. My very first concert ever was Kiss in 1979. And he was the lead singer of a band called Blackjack. And they opened the show. And Blackjack's lead guitar player is Bruce Kulick, who becomes Kiss's lead guitar player in about five or six years. So... They were a great hard rock band. Michael Bolton's first record, I only ever heard the, fir- the the single that they released off of it, and it's called Fool's Game, and it's so cool. Hmm. You would never think that he was going to go off a few years later and sing, like, <laughs> Dock of the Bay and shit like that. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah, so I'm not a, I'm not a Bolton fan, but he's, he started out okay. Well, you know, <laughs> these are all, these are albums that, like, sort of, 
either launched their the careers of, you know, or yeah. were mm -hmm. they were already massive bands that we're talking about that that had, you know, I mean, same thing with like, you know, Rick Springfield had a, you know, Living in Oz came out that that year, which was mm. hugely popular for him. And, you know, right. Um, there, there's just so many there's so many albums. Mm -hmm. There's so many. Yeah, it's in, there's also uh, Heaven 17, The Luxury Gap. Oh, yeah. Which has one of my favorite records ever is Temptation mm -hmm. uh, by Heaven 17. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Tina Turner was such a huge fan of The Luxury Gap that uh, she recorded two songs with them, one mm -hmm. a Bowie cover a year later. Are we ready for May? Are we ready to work hard for the money? I think oh, I was going to mention that, too. <laughs> I knew you were. <laughs> go ahead do it Donna. well just miss donna I, was, was this the biggest album of her career it was actually her second biggest okay the biggest was 79 bad girls oh it's okay the on, only number one album that she had and it sold like double platinum whereas mm -hmm. uh hard for the money basically did like a platinum i just find it fascinating that in 1983 d disco is so dead and yet donna summer is so yeah. massive you know because well, she just it just speaks to how great she is you know and her voice yes. and her you know. a lot of the really great vocalists of that era survived like mm -hmm. diana ross has a record that year mm -hmm. donna summer's got a record um gloria Gaynor's still kicking around so there's there's a couple people that survived it intact um yeah, yeah. More, but not as many that that did as you know that did right. But yeah, and but yep. none of them really had the success that Donna did that year. No. And this was kind of a resurgence for her because she had a couple of albums that well, she had a change of record label, and then the first two records on Geffen didn't do as well as her previous stuff. So this one was a big resurgence for her, and it was a big resurgence for her. Huge. Yeah, and she would continue on for the rest of the 80s uh, doing moderate hits. I mean, she she still had a successful career. She didn't have any top 10s or anything like that after this album, but she still did really well and was able to sustain a career when pretty much, like Rob said, all those other disco people just kind of died off and fell yeah. by the wayside. Yeah. So good, good on Donna. Um, how, about, how about we also reach for the beach? The Fix. Mm -hmm. Holy cool. shit, I love The Fix so much. And Reach the Beach came out that year. May 15th, it was their second album. Great singles. Uh, one Thing Leads to Another, Saved by Zero. I love those songs so much. Yeah, but um, one that was not released as, I don't think it was released as a single in America, but MTV played it, and that is Sign of Fire. Holy God, mm. I love that song. That is such a great record. Great record. You know, little side note, Bob went on tour with these guys with his band Winter Hours, but it was not oh. this, this year. I mean, it was later, yeah. later. But oh, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Because yeah, Win Winter Hours was later in the 80s, right? Yes. They were later in the 80s and then in the early 90s, they were. Right. You know. Right. Yep. Man, that's another good band that people should go look up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's my husband, too. <laughs> Can I talk about ministry? No. Sure. May I talk about it? <laughs> <laughs> so I love With Sympathy, the album that came out on May 10th of that year. And yeah, I think that this was such a great synth pop kind of album. And I know it, it you know, Al, Al Jorgensen really, um, I think he had mixed feelings about this album. He sort of disowned it for a while or just was saying that the album that like, I believe it was Arista that they were on 
was sort of forcing him to be like more poppy and synth pop and new wavy than he wanted to be. But then later he kind of recanted. I think it was in a documentary or something that he mm. that he was saying like he only heard hardcore music after this. And so the the combination of like that plus a synth pop equaled industrial. And he was really, mm. you know, these, this was really one of the first, you know, precursors to industrial music and you know then they really went full full on industrial after the this album but and I'll, the funny thing about this album too is that he sung in a fake english accent yes i'm from like chicago <laughs> or whatever i wanted to, i wanted to tell her revenge <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah effigy oh, um, work for love oh man this is such a good record though i love it he anyway. remixed work for love later too to mm -hmm. make it a little more industrial I remember, I just remember sitting in my room and playing it over and over. I love it. I love the album cover with the hand and everything. It's cool. Yeah. So whether he liked it or not, I liked it. <laughs> Thank you, Al. <laughs> right. Yeah. Don't ever ask him to sign that. Right. <laughs> May also gave us uh, New Order's Power, Corruption, and Lies. Mm -hmm. uh, they put a Latour photo uh, painting on the cover and kind of a concept album but it's got some really great stuff age of consent mm. is probably one of the best opening tracks it's on it's been on our lead yeah. tracks opening track show and also on our bass show um but the age of consent is yep. fantastic um your silent face is probably one of the best breakup songs ever you know why don't you just piss off that whole thing is great it's got the prisoner you know so if you're a fan of you know nerd about that stuff like i am um you're like oh my god there's something about the prisoner and there's a song called the village you know this is awesome right um it's a really good complete record it sort of is the new order comes out of their cocoon that they went into coming out of joy division and this is who they are they kind of know mm -hmm. what, what they are now yeah. And it's uh, it doesn't sound dated still at all, so and it's surprisingly orchestral in in places, which is nice. Which yeah. when you th would have seen that band in 1980, you would never have thought that they'd be melodic. <laughs> I've got a couple of things that come out this month that Anthony and I share in a big way, and that is Iron Maiden and the debut album by Dio, the debut solo album by Ronnie James Dio. Uh, Iron Maiden put out Peace of Mind, which is my second favorite Iron Maiden album. Um, and we're talking about The Trooper, Flight of Icarus, To Tame a Land, Quest for Fire. It's an incredible record. But the Dio album, Holy Diver, that's that picks up our story from way back in January when uh, Dio is basically out of Black Sabbath and they're having a squabble over how the live album is going to be remixed. And then he just goes off and does this incredibly killer first solo album with basically a new band called Dio Holy Diver. It is unbelievable. I don't think the production is very good. I think the, it's got way too thin sound to it. I don't think the bass is enough. And I think the guitar has too much of a, like a, a, a trebly crunchy kind of sound to it. But otherwise the, the songs are just unbelievably good. So a couple of good metal picks for Anthony and me. Yes. Right you know, and usually in, in, in these things, I do like a, a prog report. There ain't jack shit going on in the eighties for prog, especially <laughs> in around 83. So there ain't nothing to talk about. Uh, well, we did have Marillion. That's true. But I got a yes album to talk about in the second half of the year, but nothing really is happening. So 
Rob, what else you got? Uh, I was going to bring up Weird Al Yankovic. What? what? Weird Al's first album debuts. Really? Produced by Rick, produced by Rick Derringer. Oh, God. <laughs> Which, oh, say what thanks, you want. 1983. <laughs> say what you want. No, say what you want. Man, when the 80s yeah. got really horrible and people thought the world was going to end and MTV was getting too full of itself, long came Weird Al to make us laugh. <laughs> that is true. I love He's it. He's the only man in that decade to break Kurt Loder. Oh, wow. He's the only time Kurt Loder laughed on, I believe, laughed on camera. It was something Weird Al did to him. Huh. That's you not know. surprising. Yeah. but um, That's hilarious. And nobody really knew what the hell this was or who this guy was or no. anything. No. And it comes along like it's a throwback to the 50s, the parody record, right? But the, the people that he got to play on those records and, you know, Rick Derringer, the production on it's not bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. and people forget, you know, he's got musical abilities. You know, he's a musician. Yeah. So, yeah. And then uh, also we have Billy Bragg, Life's a Riot with Spy versus Spy. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that one. Yeah. Uh, a New England oh, such a good is record. on that one. It's It's still a great record. Yeah. I have one more to mention for May, yeah. which is Elton John's Too Low for Zero, only because it's like, oh. this is like his 17th record studio album. At right. Least. <laughs> but it was a comeback kind of because it was like his, the previous four albums were pretty disappointing, like hit wise and sales wise compared to like his, you know, early to mid seventies. So, um, and, and this is the first time since Blue Moves uh, that all the lyrics were written by Bernie and he reunited with like that core seventies lineup of like Davey D, you yeah. know, Nigel and even Ray Cooper was on this one. So, you know, mm. I mean, it was pretty huge. Like I'm still standing too low for, I guess that's why they call it the blues. Like it was, it was pretty omnipresent. So mm-hmm. I think this was, yeah, yeah I'm true. still standing was everywhere. Yeah. Oh my God. But I did love that song. I did love, I'm still standing. Yeah. That's a great song. I'm not, I wasn't too big a like fan of the Elton '80s stuff, but that was a good no, song. no. But that it was a nice little comeback he had in the '80s. Though. Definitely, I lo- I saw mm-hmm. this tour also. The, believe it or not, at the Garden. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. that's cool. Oh, at the yeah. Garden too. That's awesome. Oh, last thing is the Creatures released at Feast, which yes. is the Susie and the Banshees great side yes. project record. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, I, I love them so much. Mm-hmm. I don't know that much about them. I only know a couple of records, but man, I I love them. Yes, the new romantic movement's going. It's in full swing. Yeah. Susie's kind of looking to do something a little different, you know, yeah. outside the banshees. It's kind of when she's like, well, I kind of have this like desire to do more. And you get this and you get the glove a little later with Robert Smith. Mm. You know, that Susie's mm-hmm. kind of starting to like bridge new romantic goth and pop into interesting little ways and a little bit of punk and it's starting to go in different places. So, yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting record record in terms of like the visual aesthetic. Um, You know, it's got the whole like Asian art cover. It's got, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. All right. So let me, let me get to my big thing that I've been waiting to talk about, because I think we should do a whole show about this. Mm-hmm. And that is, this is the, the final weekend in May, and it is the Us Festival. Holy shit. There was a concert film from that show that MTV played. And, and basically, um, I, I spent, we didn't have MTV where I lived, but at the, the office supply place that my father worked, um, that that town did have MTV and he got cable in his office and I would spend literally a whole weekend 
in that office, like just spend the weekend there and just watch MTV. And I saw that concert film and have seen it since probably about a hundred fucking times because I love it so much. And the us festival, this was the second one. The first one was 82. This is the second one. And they had it divided up into a new wave day, a heavy metal day and a rock day. And it wasn't really that well organized. I mean, because you have like Berlin and missing persons, not on the new wave day, but on the rock day. And I guess they just had too many huh. new wave people to like really stack them all into one day. But the new wave day was headlined by the clash minute work, stray cats, flock of seagulls and so a bunch of other bands. Oingo Boingo, Wall of Voodoo, the divinals. Holy oh, shit. I love that. the heavy metal day, man. Van Halen, Scorpions, Triumph, Judas Priest, Ozzy, Motley Crue and Quiet Riot opened the day. Oh. And day three, the rock day, is Bowie, one of the biggest shows that he did on his oh, yes. serious moonlight tour. Stevie Nicks, Joe Walsh, Pretenders, and that was the the day that U2 pretty much sealed the deal for becoming the biggest band in America. Uh, when Bono goes climbing over the yeah. Um, all over the, the railing, the scaffolding yeah. on the sound equipment and stuff. Now th- th- it really turns a corner in 85 when live aid comes along, but 83, this is like his first big, like stake in the ground, pitching the, the U2 flag in America. Mm-hmm. But there was also a quarter flash of all bands. I, <laughs> I, I really liked them. Uh, Little Steven and the disciples of soul. So it's a great, great, fantastic festival. Wow. The following week, they did one country day that nobody remembers because it wasn't included in the concert film and nobody ever talks about it. But man, I loved that. Mm. I, 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 of course, didn't go to it, but I watched that film a million times. It's so Yeah, cool. I have seen it, but I, I, I just that lineup is crazy. The Rock Day. Wow. The yeah. Pretenders. And oh, I wish I was there. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. It's time to wrap it up. We got one more month to go. June 83. What's happening in June? Stevie Nicks. I was going to say, speaking of Stevie Nicks at the Us Festival. Yeah. The Wild Heart. Like a week later, her second solo album comes out. Which is produced by Jamie Iovine and Mm -hmm. recorded pretty much right after her best friend Robin, Robin Anderson, passed away. And this was sort of like her... Steve, I think Stevie had sort of a renewed energy, like an appreciation for life after. I mean, she was devastated. Of course, yeah. I know that, you know, it was a clear, but she also kind of had this momentum going in her, her life. And she just recorded the most beautiful album. I think this is my favorite one of her solo albums. And it was huge, too. I mean, Wild Heart, yeah. If Anyone Falls, Stand Back. And I mm-hmm. want to just talk about this, the last song on the album, which is Beauty and the Beast, mm-hmm. um, because it was it was basically she, she said it was inspired from a 1946 film that, w- that had the same name. It was like one of her favorite movies. But um, she basically said that this song encompasses her whole life and represents every represents how everyone is either a beauty or a beast, but usually both. And they right. had a full string orchestra. And a grand piano on this beautiful, beautiful track. The lyrics are so moving. And during the session for this, the recording session, she and her backup vocalist, they wore like these long black gowns and they served champagne to all the visiting musicians and stuff mm, to set the right. mood. 
But that song, go listen to that song, Beauty and the Beast. It is fantastic. It's interesting that you say that too, because she and her girls, the backup girls, which is Sharon Ceylani and um, Lori Petty, yes. always dressed to go into the studio. They always, you know, like presented themselves professionally and they always looked all like all of Stevie's finery and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. They always made an effort in the studio. But yes, that's really cool that they, and I just wonder if they got, if Stevie got that idea from when Fleetwood Mac recorded uh, Songbird because it was in a big concert hall. They mm -hmm. sat Christine down at a grand piano. Oh. They gave her roses. They gave her champagne. Yeah. And, and they just it, it was all to set the, the tone for what that song is going to sound like. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure they did. I'm sure it was like, you know, because they had this whole orchestra there, the strings. Yeah. You know, they had, yeah. yeah. It must have been pretty cool just to imagine yeah. being a fly on that wall. Great job getting your orchestra liquored up before they have to play. <laughs> well, they but, I mean, it came out it good. turned out well. Um, I also want to say a couple of my favorite state, uh, Stevie songs on that album. One is called Sable on Blonde. Phenomenal yes. song. Um, Enchanted is good. But my two favorite songs from the session are not on the album. One was on a movie soundtrack and one was the B-side to Stand Back. And that is Violet and Blue and Garbo. Holy huh. cow. Those are great, Garbo. great tunes. I thought you were going to say Nightbird for a minute, but yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good one, too. That's also the year we I talked about that on our SNL show that she was on Saturday Night Live and they did Stand Back and Nightbird. Right, right. So good. So good. So good. Anyway, that was one of my right. two. I'll do my second one. Well, I know one the other one. Finale. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Rob, what else you got? I just asked one simple question. Who are you going to call? Oh, God. <laughs> no. June 7th. Ray Parker Jr. releases Ghostbusters, which no. is probably the most annoyingly catchy song <laughs> of the month or for a while. It's by all accounts just a horrible record, but man, is it catchy. Popular. It is, yeah, it's painfully, painfully catchy. Um, so yeah, we should talk about that. Then we just did. So uh, I also want to talk about the fifth studio album by Talking Heads, uh, Speaking yeah. in Tongues. It just had its anniversary. It's still great. It's fantastic. Um, it's on the Rolling Stone list of 100 best records, you know, yeah. but everybody knows uh, Girlfriend is Better and Burning Down the House. Those are kind of yep. the two. Um, but yeah. you've also got This Must Be the Place. You've got, I like Moon Rocks. That's just me. Um, Slippery People's great. You know, Talking Heads is like fully comfortable with being the weird art rock band and they've totally found their footing. They know where they're at. They're confident, you know, um, yeah, Chris, Franz, Chris Franz just is fantastic on it. I don't think he gets enough credit. Harrison's, I mean, everyone talks about, oh, David Byrne did, but you know, Harrison and Franz are pretty incredible mm -hmm. on it and then right. tina's bass works on some of that yeah. stuff is almost funk it's it's a little more funky right then you've Tina's got a phenomenal bass player she is yeah but it's a little it's a little funkier than some of their other records too right mm -hmm. and this is sort of like the time you hear talking heads you know because i heard burning down the house i saw it on mtv and it's like what the hell is this right oh man and i hated that song what? i hated it because huh. it was awful now, oh my God, I love I, it. I, no, no, no. I came around to the Talking Heads phenomenon later. And I, then, I, of course, now I fucking love that song. But at the time, part of I it too hated it. Is that it just stuck out 
so much compared yes. to the records that was coming out. So when That's they played it, very true for me, it was always hard to hear it on like the radio or on MTV because it was coming in and out of records that there wasn't a way to make it fit. It was kind of annoying for a while, right? And MTV wouldn't stop playing that song. And yeah. if you, if it's on the radio, you can just flip to another station. If it's MTV, you're stuck. You all you can do is wait and wait it out. And I got to the point where I was like, just burn the fucking house down already. <laughs> yeah um but it's still you know swamp is used in like a ton of films later too which is kind of weird that no one sort of expects it's just got a really the whole thing just flows man it's like and part of this too is it's on sire records and this is sort of this period steph you might be able to speak to this too where Sire is really realizing that there's a zeitgeist in America for like the B-52s and Talking Heads and these bands that don't fit a niche. And they start really hammering away. Yeah, Sire was always the kind of underground cool label in a way. Even and though they and were this major. is kind of when they start to get the momentum. Yeah. You, know, you, get the, you get that Ramones record, you get Talking Heads. I think you get Madonna a little later. So I think part of this is that the label sort of knew that this was a band that was interesting and had things to say and do, but I don't think they knew what they was. I think it was just, let's let the cool kids go play in the room and we're going to put it out. Mm -hmm. And I think that burning down the house kind of shows that because it's like, this is the single. We don't know why it's the single and we're going to play it into the ground. We're going to you know burn it into everyone's minds. I got the record because someone said the whole record is fantastic. I'm like that burning down the house song. I, I can't get away from it. Right. It's everywhere. But then I heard girlfriend is better and I'm like, okay, I get it. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's a really resilient record. And you hear, I think for the first time, David Byrne taking influences from other styles of music. Um, you know, in, in the same way that Peter Gabriel also kind of does around this time, you're starting to pull in music from Africa and South America and things, and it's starting to kind of seep into what you want to do with your music. And you see them doing some stuff. And again, the drumming, the bass is fantastic on it. Yeah. All right, Steph, bring it on home with the okay. grand finale. My favorite band in the whole world, the first band I ever saw live. Well, Go Go's and Police, but this, the, the Police Synchronicity, their, their fifth, their final album. The most successful album. I mean, it won three Grammys for them. And th this is like almost fitting into the same category for me as the U2 war record in terms of like, it was everything to me. You know, th this was another record that I constantly practiced my drums to. I, 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 I even my, my band covered like synchronicity to, oh my God. And every breath you take <laughs> from this album. Um, so it was just, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it was one of those things that was uh, just so influential in my life, but it was it was a massive commercial success everywhere yeah. you went, and it was pretty amazing that they broke up right after. They just this that this was huge, and then ba ba zoom <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> no, like <laughs> it was it was. Uh, I, I can kind of understand walking out on a high note. And, you know, then they all went off to do their own things and, you know, really successful. Obviously, Sting was a huge success solo, but um, but in a way, it was kind of like, I think they had more. I don't know. I love the two title tracks. Synchronicity 1 and 2. 
I think they're possibly my favorite police songs. Mm. I know. I believe now, it though. They're, yeah, those are great they're songs. So good. And they're so different from each other too. But you know, the the flip side of that is I also really love Ms. Gradenko. It's such a good <laughs> that's Stuart's Copeland song on that album. Yes. Yep. Yes. I hate First of all, mother. I, I, Oh no, Mother is fantastic. Oh God, I don't know. It's so strange, but I love it. But you know, I am such a Stuart Copeland fan. I mean, to the point where he just makes me want to burn my drumsticks and never try it again because he's so amazingly good. Yeah. Oh, that guy. Like there's a great fill on, uh, um, Oh my God, when he's like that, Mm -hmm. it's like, it's just, he has the knack for getting perfect little fills in, you know? Yep. Uh, yeah, that's a great album. And I think that this album was sort of like a little bit less of the reggae influence that the first yeah. four albums had. Uh, yeah, and they were, definitely. And they were going more like production heavy, kind of like heavier synths and stuff. and Right. Um, a little more world music rather than like just reggae kind of sound. But uh, yeah. Yeah. I got to say, Walking in Your Footsteps also. Oh, yeah. I love it so much. Yep. All right. Well, shit. That was a hell of a year. Holy and that was shit. only six months of it. <laughs> oh, my God. But oh, my Good. God. So much stuff in 1983. Woo-hoo. An unbelievable year. We are going to be back next week with the second half of 1983, July through December. So make sure you join us for that. Before we go, though, first of all, we got a couple of picks of the week. Rob, why don't you do yours first? So we haven't really uh, been able to jump into this because we've had so much going on. Yeah. Last couple of weeks, but we lost Andy Rourke from the Smiths. And for people in my generation, it's not quite a Beatle dying, but it's kind of up there. And I don't think people really understand that um, that rhythm section of the Smiths of Andy Rourke and Johnny Marr is something a lot of bands will never, ever have again. So make it a point sometime in your world today or tomorrow to listen to the queen is dead or meet is murder by the Smiths and just listen to the guitar work on it. Um, that's my first pick for the week. Also the, an amazing songwriter named Cynthia Weil passed away. Um, she wrote, you've lost that loving feeling and um, we got to get out of this place wow. uh, by the animals. She also wrote just a little Lovin' by dusty Springfield. Um, yeah. All these great songwriters wow. of that era are going and people don't really appreciate one, the craftsmanship, and two, just how great pieces of art these people are leaving. So I want to mention that. Uh, but getting into the real world, um, Bar Italia, are, um, they're English. They're on Matador. They're going to be big. And they have an album called Tracy Denim. It's got everything you want. Um, you know, it's black. It's post-punky. It's got some really great drumming and guitars on it. Uh, so I recommend that. And also the wedding present. Um, with 24 songs, basically they put out a seven inch single every month for a year. And, uh, all the songs on it are now collected on us on an album called 24 songs. So there you go. Those are my, my recommendations right. and the Donna summer documentary. Well, that's, that was going to be my pick. So yeah. I've, we haven't done this in a couple of weeks and I wasn't here last week and, uh, I've got a list of things that I want to get in, but I can't 
this week. So I'm going to, because there's like a new Yes album and a new Foo Fighters album and another documentary that I watched and all kinds of stuff. But I'm going to go with the Donna Summer documentary because we're talking about 1983. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a big year for, for Donna. And I just watched it this afternoon and Jesus Christ, is it sad. It is one of the most depressing. I know her music is so full of joy and fun and energy and life. Mm -hmm. And this was the saddest fucking documentary I've ever seen. Oh my God. Um, And it's, I know. And it, it talks about, um, every change in her career, how it affected. She struggled with fame. She struggled with, you know, being a mother versus being a public figure. You know, she, mm-hmm. uh, they talked about, uh, sexual abuse in her teen years and a suicide attempt. You know, it was just unbelievable. The whole documentary is put together by her daughter who was basically trying to piece together who her mother was because mm-hmm. her mother was such a complex person and it is it is i mean it is an amazing watch it is but it's not a career retrospective that's what's interesting about it and it doesn't necessarily go strictly chronologically because they'll take something from you know like a a 1985 album and then come back to something that happened in 79 after that so it's more of a discussion of who she was as a person and it is oh it's so good it is such an eye-opener Wow, so I didn't know. I any highly of recommend it. It's, it's on HBO Max. Okay. Um, it goes into her origins as a music theater performer and just all kinds of stuff. It is incredible. Her struggle with religion versus the sex symbol that she was at the beginning of her career. And oh my God, it is, it is phenomenal. So definitely go watch it. All right. So definitely let us know. You can email us at modernmusicology.com. And the number one at gmail.com. And just let us know about this episode. What What's your favorite record from 1983? Something that you remember well from 83 that you want to share with us that maybe we didn't get to. If it's something that happens in the second half of the year, hopefully we'll get to it next week. So uh, drop us a line. Let us know. If you enjoy the show, give us a rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Drop a comment on our Facebook page or our Instagram. And you can also find more about each one of us. Stephanie, where would people look for you? Well, you can find me on Bandcamp under my name. You can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music, um, on Instagram at there underscore r underscore birds. Also, I have a website, thereourbirds.com. And then you can also find me on Spotify and all those like fabulous streaming platforms. All right, Rob. Hey, kids, uh, you can find me on um, the needcoffee.com podcast, Weekend Justice, uh, also doing some writing here and there for uh, Inc. 19. And then uh, I do a radio show on KDHX called Juxtaposition. It's on Wednesday nights from 7 to 9 Central. Uh, if you miss a show, you can easily just go to the archive stream and uh, listen to it later. You can listen to it live if you want. Maybe there's a Gila monster outside and you don't really want to go outside and and water the plants. You can stay inside and listen to that on the radio uh, for two hours. Then uh, I also have a radio show Mondays from 6 to 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time as opposed to Greenwich Happy Time, um, (laughs) which is 1 to 3 Eastern (laughs) at 12 to 2 Central um, called Antics on Louder Than War Radio. Um, It has best been described as... um, 
Fright Rock at its finest. So I'll, I'll wear that. And um, yeah, you can check that out on Louder Than War Radio on their website. All right. And what about you, Alan? I've got CosmicCreative.com, K-O-Z-M-I-C Creative.com. Go there and you'll find everything. All <laughs> right. So this was a long show. So we'll be back next week with the second half of 1983. Join us then. Till then, take care. Have a great week. And we will see you around the bend. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.